Hey, it's Melvin, one of your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts. Whether it's your first time tuning in or you're a longtime listener, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. Reviews are the lifeblood of the podcast world, so if you want to help us out, it'll take only a moment of your time. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy the show. Hi, my name's Melvin, and what's it like to hold the hand of someone you love, interlinked? Welcome to Cinematic Doctrine, a non-spoiler Christian movie podcast where we sit at the table of cinema and eat. Tonight we'll be dining on Panos Cosmato's sophomore film, Mandy. I gotta be honest, this is one of those films I've been itching to cover on Cinematic Doctrine since I started, but I didn't want to do it right away because I wanted to do it justice. I wanted to have a schedule down. I wanted to find my voice. I wanted to be confident. I wanted to be totally and completely prepared to write you guys a great episode on a great movie. Is that time now? Probably not. I would have waited longer, but in the Cinematic Doctrine Facebook group, I held a poll for my next review, and people voted Mandy. So, here we are. Trial by fire. No wasting time. Let's get into it. Mandy, as described by IMDb, The enchanted lives of Red and Mandy in a secluded forest are brutally shattered by a nightmarish hippie cult and their demon biker henchmen, propelling a man into a spiraling, surreal rampage of vengeance. Featuring Nicolas Cage as Red... Andrea Riseborough as Mandy, and Linus Roach as Jeremiah Sand, Mandy has no MPAA certificate, so let me give you the Melvin certificate. Mandy is a hard R film, with intense violent content, bloody images, gore, graphic nudity, sexual content, pervasive drugs, and alcohol, and language. The violence is wild and stems from absurd fun to ridiculously grotesque with some really stark and shocking visuals. There's one scene where a man exposes himself entirely for a short period with the purpose of intimidation. And other brief animated segments include the presence of a cartoon depiction of a naked woman in a non-sexual manner. Also, there's a painting of a topless, angelic-looking woman. The film transitions from creative, dreamlike, sober imagery to a drug-infused, nightmarish atmosphere as characters heavily abuse illegal substances. One such character is shoveling cocaine into his nose as he is watching highly inappropriate content on a television featuring a man and a woman. Also, there's a fair amount of language as the intensity of the film mounts up. Mandy is a wild, wild movie, but don't let the content fool you. It has plenty to discuss, even if you've already written it off as a never-watch on your list. And that's totally fine, by the way. Cinematic Doctrine isn't here to tell you to watch movies. It's here to talk about them and bring to the forefront culturally important discussion topics that a film brings to the table. That is, unless it's a bad movie, in which case I would rip it to shreds for about 10 minutes and you get to enjoy my rant. But no ranting here, folks. I love this movie. In fact, it's my number three movie from 2018, and that's out of the 55 I've seen so far. But before we can jump in, there's a bit of a story behind my experience with Mandy. So my wife and I had been looking forward to seeing Mandy since we first saw the trailer, from the heavy metal aesthetic to beautiful visuals screaming Nicolas Cage and chainsaw battles. We couldn't wait, but when the time came for the one-night showing in theaters, neither of us could make it. So we sulked waiting to see if a local theater would feature a special midnight showing since Mandy was so popular. Thankfully, a nice art house theater in Philly announced they would be showing Mandy in a few weeks. We near immediately bought tickets and waited for the day to drive out to the city and watch this long-awaited film. December comes around and we drive out to Philly, we see Mandy, then we're driving home late in the morning moonlight. We're unbelievably tired after long days at work and city driving isn't making that any better and honestly, the whole trip was pretty miserable. Then, as if things couldn't get worse, we get into a car accident. 
Someone pulled in a little too close to the driver's side of my vehicle, scraped my car, and takes my side mirror with them. Let me put it this way, if I were in Australia, the word I yelled from my driver's seat would have been a compliment, although I did use a lot of other terrible words that are probably considered quite vitriolic no matter where you live, so there's no excuse. And it didn't matter that it was 2am, I was hard pressed to let that driver know how angry I was by lambasting them with my car horn. Then we pull over. I take a moment to calm down. I reach into the glove box and grab my insurance information. I walk up to the driver's side window, and there's this small, young woman. I don't say much, just ask if she is okay. She is, we trade information, and she goes, Oh, you're USAA as well? So am I, my husband is a double amputee. Yeah, you're probably shaking your head right now, maybe chuckling at the irony of this whole thing. I mean, I completely raged at this woman. I woke up the neighborhood. I murderously yelled from my seat, screaming, are you serious right now? This is how you end my week? This horrible week? You hit my effing car and effing? And so on and so forth. Meanwhile, she's hearing this horn blare behind her, feeling the mounting rage only a few feet away, fearful that whoever's in that car could cause her serious harm. Or maybe she's thinking to herself it would be just so much easier and safer to simply drive home rather than risk the chance that something horrible might happen. Of course, these thoughts only dawned on me as I drove away. The Spirit settled my heart as I prayed to the Lord with anger, guilt, shame for my actions, my complete lapse of care and compassion, my failure to trust the Lord in all these things, even a car accident at 2 a.m. that honestly just wasn't that bad. Worst of all, it was the first time my wife had ever seen me like that. She'd never seen me so angry, so loud, so intense. If that woman driving wasn't the most frightened person in the world that evening, then my wife was. In fact, I would bet on it. And my actions made the rest of the weekend hard for us in the Benson household. But what does my car accident have to do with Mandy? Because I, I think Mandy is a very, very angry movie. Now, that doesn't mean it's a bad movie or a mean movie like Hellboy or a movie that's trying to negatively impact the viewer. I think that in its most basic sense, it's a film written by a man who is filled with a lot of anger towards something and is simply trying to make sense of it, or perhaps finds the writing process helpful, almost therapeutic, as he seeks to understand something about the world that brings him anguish. And while the anger in Mandy can seem overwhelming, it's juxtaposed by an equally overwhelming amount of love and empathy. It's funny to describe it that way, especially after perusing trailers or stills from the movie, like it has a Nicolas Cage chainsaw fighting some dude in a mill, or crazy biker demons who practically drowned themselves in LSD, or even the presence of a mythical axe that Cage molds in preparation to hunt down drug-induced demons and insanely vile and possessive cult-like hippies. And yet... Panos has molded this mythical fantasy to carry raw anger, fear, love, dread, guilt, passion, tenderness, hatred, misery, and anything you could consider intimate within its runtime. There are soft moments between Red and Mandy that feel like something from a child's dream. Two lovers resting beneath an open cabin as the starry night sky glistens rainbow streams across their faces, a moment shared as quiet as a whisper yet filled with great compassion as they talk about their favorite planets and Jupiter's ever-raging storm that could eat the whole Earth. Despite the mystical picture Panos paints, 
I've had that very same experience. I've laid in bed with my wife talking about things I love or interesting things I'd been reading or listening to her share deep, rich thoughts on the things she'd labored over the day and thinking to myself how beautiful it was to have this moment with her. And to Panos's benefit, this moment shows so much intimacy without being explicit. He isn't spending his time writing a scene where Red and Mandy consummate their love. He, he doesn't need to show us what it's like to love and be loved by falling back on such an easy, exploitable action such as sex. Panos leans on those moments of quiet discussions as your head rests against the pillow. And there's a lot more of this as we embark on Red and Mandy's journey. Moments of heartbreak as Mandy shares a traumatic experience in her childhood. Red's genuine fascination with Mandy's artwork. These little moments add such a wealth of believability to characters who otherwise talk very little, especially for Red, who Nicolas Cage performs with exceptional nuance. And this works so well in conjunction to Linus Roach's character, Jeremiah Sand. Sand is this power-hungry, narcissistic, psychopathic cult leader who believes all things are his, that God has imparted the whole of creation to be his own, and that everything is his to love and be loved by. And I want to start by saying that I don't think Panos is commentating on the church with Sand. I don't think that his cult, Children of the New Dawn, is supposed to be a twisted picture of the church. The more I watch Mandy, the more I think that Sand exemplifies an intense, complete embrace of power as savior. And Panos isn't blind to how a commitment to power as one's savior is intrinsically related to, if not completely born out of, one's weakness. And Sand is undeniably weak. His idea of love is control, manipulation, unsolicited sexual submission. The moment he doesn't have any of these, he seems to burst at the seams and fall apart, frantically seeking to put back together what he believed would save him, or at the very least stabilize him. And here I haven't even talked about Mandy, the namesake of this film. First off, wow, Andrea Riseborough's performance is out of this world. This is an actor who just gets it. She absolutely gets it. She knows exactly who Mandy is and goes headfirst into the role with extreme professionalism. And that isn't to downplay everyone else's performance, because they're putting their A-game forth too. But I think Riseborough is the biggest takeaway. She's just fantastic. So, characters aside, what makes Mandy an anger-filled rage fest? I haven't even described anything that would make you think to yourself, Panos is a man at war with so much right now. I think that's where we need to start contrasting what he paints with the first half of the film to the latter as the, as the first half is filled with quiet intimacy and the latter is like an unleashed torrent of emotional baggage. From intense violence to unceasing suspense, Mandy begins to reveal an underlying madness that can seem like a completely different film at first. I know that's how I felt with my initial watch, that the contrast between the first and second half was so vast I wondered if Panos had made a complete misstep combining two stories that simply shouldn't be. But with each subsequent watch, I came to realize there was a connective tissue that was so strong one couldn't separate the patient love of the first half to the unbridled rage in the second. And I don't think that the fury that's so undeniably aggressive is anything to scoff at either. But neither do I think it's inappropriately used. Well, not all of it, at least. It's this latter half that features some of the more offensive content, and while any and all forms of nudity are total and complete misfires, I think the intense graphic violence lends to the message that Panos is trying to say. Mandy is an exciting, beautiful film that is filled to the brim with both passion and pain. It's unceasing in its creative imagery, never once embracing words such as dull or uninspired, but this beauty runs parallel to an ironic portrayal of the world. 
It's one that doesn't care about anything that happens or anyone it happens to. It isn't a world with answers, justice, or soul-satisfying solutions. It isn't a universe in which the stars align to show our hero the right way to redemption. It's a brutal, harsh, unapologetic image of a life lived interrupted. It's nihilistic at its core and absurdist in its presentation. And in a world like ours, where the internet is populated with nihilistic and absurdist humor, when Aubrey Plaza played a character on Parks and Rec whose whole stick is to satirize this kind of culture, when popular icons like Rick and Morty are pinned and stitched onto every article of clothing, you're probably a bit like me, sharing a sour taste in your mouth about the mere idea of entertaining this kind of worldview. Yet, despite Mandy's playful use of these tropes, I don't think the takeaway is that Panos is declaring the world to be hopeless, meaningless, and one big joke. Or rather, he isn't evangelizing that this sort of worldview is the end-all, be-all way to see the world. He isn't chiding over the sufferings of others. He isn't satirizing pain and lamentations like most other media of this nature. With Mandy, I think he's weeping. This film paints love with such care and patience because it's real. This film engages suffering with such stark brutality because it's real. This film makes the world beautiful because it is. This film demands justice because we need it. So it isn't a nihilistic film, nor is it absurdist. Is it a tragedy as opposed to a comedy? Absolutely. Is it hopeless with a question? Oh, most definitely. I think Panos has written a story that is struggling to make sense of two contrary realities. A story that's trying to recognize either the correlation between joy and suffering, or a story that's simply aware that both exist, and that something seems fundamentally off about that. I think he's posing these realities with a big old question mark at the end of his film. But this leaves one question for myself. Melvin, why do you love this film so much? I think because I find myself resonating so deeply with this struggle. I feel such a deep relationship with this battle. This search for knowledge on the balance between joy and suffering. And it's not as though I'm blindsided by this fight. I'm not faltering in my faith in Christ simply because I see both good and evil existing in the world. I'm not thinking to myself, how can God be good if evil exists? Although I recognize that this is a huge question the world wrestles with. I think for me, I often find myself struggling with patience. I struggle with waiting for goodness to come. I struggle with seeing the light in my darkest moments. I often must lean on the words of James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or even repeat this same idea with Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Despite rehearsing these biblical truths, this recognition that trials work to sanctify me, molding me more like Christ, I'm still filled with dread at the mere hint of work-related stress, car troubles, the suffering of my friends, or even my own willingness to sin. I flee not from temptation, but from hardships, from things that might, as I perceive it, negatively impact my day-to-day -day life. And perhaps most egregious of all, I long to be the final judge. 
I fantasize about getting back at those who have wronged me. I am jealous for the opportunity to exploit the things I know. I think of old co-workers or bosses who have been irrevocably vile in their racism, sexism, and complete disrespect. I think of close friends who have since turned their back on me when I needed them most. I think of those who hurt the ones I love. There is a great red spot storming within me whose tempest clenches my fists and grits my teeth, whose fumes escape my mouth and burn those nearby. Surely my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? God can. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is not one thing that the Lord doesn't know about me, not a part of my body that isn't filled with his spirit, not an action I take that he doesn't already know about. He feels the rage within me and hears my cries for justice. He sees my impatience and restrains my wicked fantasies. He renews my heart, softening it to the word and pointing me to Romans 8:18 8, through 24. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. Patience. When I'm asked by my friends what I think the Lord is teaching me, I often answer with patience. So, I hurt with Panos... I sympathize deeply with his struggle, his pain, his tireless anger, and not just when someone swerves into my car and costs me hundreds of dollars in damages. I am angry at those who treat me less than the dirt beneath their feet. I am angry at my own futility. I am angry at the guilty actions of my past, and sometimes I'm angry with God. I, too, want nothing more than justice to take hold, but justice is not mine to repay. Romans 12:19 Vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord There is a day when all sins will be paid for all wrongdoings even my own will demand judgment It's only a matter of who will be judged for them Either a person will bear the weight of their own sins and be cast aside into the pit by God or Christ will bear their sins for them gifting access to the almighty for eternity and if one trusts in Christ's all-sufficient death and resurrection, that we seek forgiveness for our sins, the Spirit will work in us to live lives like Romans 12, 20-21. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow, didn't think I was going to get through that. I have to admit, this episode was tough to write. I was expecting an easy ride since I've watched this movie so much, but man, that was crazy. I had no idea what I was in for. I realized the situation I was in when I had to read like half of Romans just to get my thoughts out properly. But 
now it's over, and what a relief. I'm eager to hear what you guys think on CinematicDoctrine.com. Did you like Mandy? Did you hate it? Did you enjoy my thoughts? Go wild in the comments. And as I mentioned at the start, this episode was voted by the lovely people in the Cinematic Doctrine Facebook group. In fact, both the It Follows and Dr. Horrible sing-along blog were also movies voted on by members. If you want to influence what I watch every now and then, be sure to join the Cinematic Doctrine Facebook group, which will be linked in the show notes. And make sure you answer the questions for the Facebook group or else you won't be allowed in. Next time, we'll be covering Dexter Fletcher's Rocket Man. Until then, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck. We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine, link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.